every so often throughout the course of history, patriots rise up at a time of need for truth and freedom. These people are called disciples of liberty for their undying love of freedom. The call has been sounded. Will you answer that call or sit back and let freedom die away? Unifying patriots everywhere against the evil trying to destroy America's freedom. You're listening to the Disciples of Liberty radio show on the America Out Loud Network. Now here's your host, Brian Hyde. Once again, welcome to the Disciples of Liberty show. I'm Brian Hyde. You are listening to the America Out Loud Network. Hey, I'm glad you're part of the audience today. Pull up a chair. Make yourself comfortable. We're going to uh, we're going to definitely veer off into some wrong think, but I hope it's the right kind of wrong think. In other words, the kind of wrong think that leaves you much more solid on who you are and what you stand for, as opposed to just getting you all fearful, angry, and, uh, you know, full of certainty as to what you're against, right? That's the path of least resistance. Unfortunately, that's the path a lot of people are following right now, simply because it's a lot easier to signal your virtue to the world than it is to live as a decent person. I'm glad you're not cut from that cloth, so let's, uh, let's boldly move forward. One of the things I wanted to start with was that uh, you look around today and you see a lot of unhappiness, in fact, uh, look, uh, can I just be perfectly honest here? I I feel unhappiness in my own life to the exact extent that I'm failing to appreciate what I have. Does that make sense? I mean, does that does that make sense to you that the more we focus on the things that are irritating to us or the things we don't have or the things we fear are going to come to pass, the less time and the less moral energy we have to focus on actually appreciating the things in our lives that are going very well. In fact, to to drive this point home, I want to share with you a commentary from Jeff Minnick. This was published on intellectualtakeout.org. And it's titled, The Goodness and Gifts of Gratitude. Such a simple thing, but it can make such a huge difference. I thought this was worth sharing. So, you know, if, if you came prepared with an axe to grind... Hang on, we'll get to the axe grinding a little bit later, but I I want you to to hear some truly solid advice from a guy who seems to know exactly what he's talking about. Jeff Minnick says, A young man I know drives to work from Front Royal to the traffic-tangled roads of Northern Virginia. He recently told a mutual acquaintance he uses that hour-long trek to prepare his mind for the day's tasks. Now, on the way home, however, he spends the same drive decompressing from work and readying himself to cheerfully greet his wife and young children. And when he arrives home, his first act is to tell his wife how much he appreciates all that she has done for their family that day. Like I said, that seems like a pretty small thing, right? But Jeff Minnick says, I wish I had possessed his wisdom when I was his age. Do you remember the movie Cool Hand Luke? 
The warden of a prison strikes an inmate, Luke, with his club, and then utters one of the film's best-known lines, What we got here is a failure to communicate. Well, Jeff Minnick says, Today we often have a failure to appreciate. And he says, Most of us, myself included, often fail to express our gratitude for the gifts bestowed on us by others. So, for instance, an employee goes above and beyond the call of duty, putting together a special report for her boss, delivering vital information well ahead of a deadline. But she receives no more recognition than a nod of the head. How about the wife who spends all day with the children, hands them over to her husband as soon as he steps through the door without asking one question about his day? Or the grown children who receive money or gifts for their birthdays and they forget all about writing a thank you note or making a phone call of appreciation. He says, in my case, I've frequently failed to say thank you for good deeds and gifts I've received at the hands of others. I've wished many times that I would have thanked my wife more often for her love and care for me and our children. He says, I wish I had told my mother before she died how grateful I was that she had taught me the values of hard work, perseverance, tender love, and forgiveness. I hope that others who have influenced me, teachers, employers, friends, even family members, know of my gratitude for the lessons they imparted and the help they provided. Now, Jeff Minnick says, there were two things I, I've learned about gratitude in old age. First, he says, when our loved ones die and you wish you told them how much they'd done for you, it's too late. In fact, he says, as I write these words, I'm thinking of an old college professor and good friend who surely knew of his powerful impact on my life, but I never directly expressed my thanks to him before he died. And second, he says, while those who have helped us are still alive, it's never too late to express our appreciation for them. In my ninth year at Southwest Junior High School in Forsyth County, North Carolina, Mr. Darden taught us a block block class of literature and geography. Now, Jeff Minnick says this guy was an excellent teacher. And 30 years later, when he began teaching, Jeff says he created some of his teacher's projects in his own classes. After another 10 years of teaching, he says, I wrote him a a note of thanks for all he had done for us. And he replied with a kind letter, happily surprised that someone had actually remembered his efforts. And he also encouraged Jeff Minnick in his teaching. So Minnick says expressing our gratitude for a job well done or for a gift is really quite simple. He says, suppose the employee that I mentioned above works overtime to get you the information you need. Pay your compliments on her hard work with a personal note or even some flowers as well as a spoken thank you. When a spouse returns at the end of a long day, offer them a word of appreciation. If Grandma, Uncle John, or anyone else sends you a gift, take the five minutes needed to write out a thank you note, address an envelope, slap on a stamp, and put it in the mailbox. Now, there are plenty of websites explaining the great blessings of bestowing such appreciation, not just for the recipient of your appreciation, but for you as well. Expressing gratitude doesn't just help the person who's receiving that expression of gratitude. It also makes the giver healthier and happier. It deepens our relationships. It even affects our physical health, allowing us to sleep better and increasing our energy levels. Jeff Minnick says, when we sincerely offer such appreciation, we strengthen the bonds of our families, our enterprises, our communities, and even our country. Even more importantly, it's the right thing to do. I know it seems like a pretty small thing, right? I mean, why would this even be an issue? But I think if, if they're in a word, the reason I see people overlook this 
is because they get caught up in a mindset of entitlement. And if you want to see entitlement, uh, boy, the, the, the woke crowd and the, the uh, identity politics, for instance, that is where entitlement is writ large and acted out you know, with, with enough noise that nobody can ignore it. I'm entitled to this because I am a victim and you owe me and therefore you should feel guilty. You should do whatever I say. Or just simply the world owes me a living. And I know it's kind of a harsh thing to say, but I think uh, Bill Lind many, many years ago pointed out that uh, cultural Marxism or political correctness, the, the need to force other people to think as I do, to say what I want you to say, to... You know, to to believe what I insist you have to believe. I'm entitled to your support and your validation. His take on it was, he says, that's a crutch that's wielded by life's failures. Now, I know that may sound a little bit harsh, but I'm not saying that so that, you know, we can go gang up on them and, and, and taunt them as they walk down the street. More than anything, it's a warning that you and I don't fall into a similar kind of mindset. And maybe it's not as blatant as you're going to be out there, you know, parading around. Or I think that probably the most recent incarnation of entitlement is, uh, you know, forgive me for pointing this out, but how many teachers are publicly freaking out in Florida because the state has made a law and passed a law and enacted a law that says you're not going to be discussing personal sexual things with children, especially third grade or younger. Well, if that's the way that you're going to be, I don't even want to be a teacher. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back it up there, Charlie. Did you become a teacher so that you could discuss sexual matters with children between kindergarten and third grade? I mean, you can see where that leads. So some kinds of that entitlement are very, very overt and I think are just simply used as a means of manipulating and, in, if I could be so bold, forcing oneself on society, seeking attention, and then demanding that everybody agree with you. Basically drafting them into your fantasy. But there are lesser forms of entitlement, too. And this is the stuff. Here's Okay, here's an example of, of what that looks like. When I notice that my teenage kids are just stacking the dishes in the sink... And uh, just assuming that somehow, somewhere, something's going to take care of them. Well, I know damn good and well what's going to take care of them. It's going to be me because I may need to access the sink or something. And I, and I start feeling that sense of entitlement. You know, by gosh, you live here. You ought to pull your own weight and so forth. Now, it's it, you may be thinking, well, Brian, that sounds like actually kind of a legitimate reason to, to be, you know, disgruntled. Yeah, I want to agree. But at the same time, my point is, My sense of entitlement, my sense of umbrage at the idea that I'm the one stuck doing the dishes really isn't accomplishing anything. So let me flip that on its head and say, what if instead of that, I ask my kids to help? Or better still, if they notice something and they actually do it on their own, and sometimes they do this to my great wonderment and amazement, they'll actually clear the sink and load the dishwasher and sometimes even start the dishwasher. What if instead of complaining about the times they don't, I pay close attention to the times when they do and make sure they know, I really appreciate what you did. That helped me so much. You saved me so much time this morning by doing that. Do you see where I'm going? It's it's the concept of, I would rather inspire the behavior that I would like to see than require it or, or guilt it out of them. 
So I share that with you just because that's one in particular that I struggle with. There are many others, but lose the sense of entitlement. Start noticing the things to be grateful for and, and watch how your perspective on the world falls into place and things become a whole lot easier. Now, let me give you another example of what this might look like. This is kind of a a different example. Could you be grateful, for instance, when people are criticizing you? I know the immediate knee-jerk reaction is, well, actually, I don't really like being criticized. It kind of sucks, and especially if it's being done publicly, you know, on a public platform or in front of other people. You know, it's, it's embarrassing. Somebody's calling attention to my deficiencies or their perceived, you know, my perceived deficiencies. How could that possibly be a positive thing? All right, here's an example. Looking at an article from Kerry McDonald. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. CNN slams libertarian children's books, causing sales to surge. Now, one of the reasons I'm sharing this with you is because I, I used to work with the individual who is mentioned in this story. I used to be a development director for this nonprofit think tank. And... I saw as these books were being conceived and launched and they were in the, the still the early stages of success five years ago. And so I understand some of the hard work that went into creating this concept and, and the thinking behind why it was created in the first place. And how do you know you're having effect? How do you know you're actually having impact? Well, a really good indicator is when the critics start lining up and taking pot shots at you. Now, again, our first instinct is usually not to say, oh, thank goodness, finally, someone has noticed me and they have, uh, you know, started, you know, making, trying to make me miserable or trying to tear me down. But here's how you handle this kind of uh, opposition. This is what a non-entitled sense of gratitude looks like. Carrie McDonald says, last week, CNN published an opinion piece arguing that the right wing children's entertainment complex is upon us. Prominently featured as a case in point were the Tuttle Twins children's books created by Connor Boyack to offset the progressive propaganda that many children now confront in classrooms across the country. The books, which have sold more than 3.5 million copies, weave in libertarian themes related to individual freedom, limited government, free markets, and entrepreneurship, and frequently highlight the work of great thinkers such as Frederick Bastiat, F.A. Hayek, Ludwig von Mises, and fee founder Leonard Reed. Nicole Hammer, who is the... uh, Reporter for CNN, a researcher at Columbia University with the Obama Presidency Oral History Project, wrote in her CNN article, quote, The goal is to seal conservatives' children off from a broader culture, to protect them from supposed liberal indoctrination by getting a head start on conservative indoctrination. Now, Connor Boyack laughed when he read that. In fact, he said, I find it humorous that those in the left-dominated media are wringing their hands about a few of us doing what they've been doing. The progressive mob has been long been infiltrating and leveraging pop culture, the school system, and entertainment outlets, and suddenly they're outraged when we're providing a counter-message to their myopic, woke worldview? He says they're clearly crocodile tears. Faux outrage over something the left has long been up to. End quote. Now, but Boyack welcomes more criticism from left-leaning media sites because it actually boosts his sales. Parents, it turns out, are clamoring for learning materials that offer different viewpoints and perspectives than what their children receive in their schools and throughout the broader culture. When the progressive magazine Current Affairs published a similar critique of the Tuttle Twins in the fall of 2020, Boyack's sales soared. 
He sold more than 12,000 books from that piece alone using a special promotion code to track sales. As of Monday, Boyack said the CNN article was directly responsible for helping to sell more than 23,000 books in just a few days, nearly doubling the amount of sales generated by the current affairs article. Boyack said these efforts to criticize our work only encourage fence sitters and curious onlookers to take action, to buy the books, and see for themselves what all the fuss is about. He says, our haters make for the greatest sales force I've ever found. If anyone else wants to attack our work and criticize Tuttle Twins books, I'd really appreciate it. Now, Carrie McDonald says, indoctrination of young people into a left-leaning political worldview has become increasingly noticeable especially as both curriculum and corporations have become overtly political in recent years. But it's hardly a new phenomenon. This is a multifaceted problem that's been festering and growing for decades. That's what Bonnie Kerrigan Snyder told Carrie in a recent uh, podcast conversation on Liberated. She's the author of the book Undoctrinate, How Politicized Classrooms Harm Kids and Ruin Our Schools and What We Can Do About It. Now, Kerrigan Snyder argues that students are increasingly having to self-censor and self-silence in both their K-12 through and college classrooms if they happen to disagree with the dominant progressive cultural narrative. And she adds that teacher education programs are similarly skewed, often tying a student-teacher's academic achievement to left-leaning political activism. So books like the Tuttle Twins, as well as Boyack's entire suite of learning materials geared toward young people of all ages offer a cultural counterweight. They help children and teens learn about different perspectives and a different societal vision. Boyack told Carrie McDonald, parents need to recognize that we're in an ideological war and that our children's minds are ground zero for today's battle. And if parents don't recognize that this war is happening, then they by default are going to lose. He continued, once we're engaged in the fight, It's not enough to simply play defense, to screen the content our kids watch and shelter them from the crazies, put parental blocks on their devices, and then hope for the best. We have to go on the offense. We have to be intentional about exposing our children to sound ideas, true facts, and a worldview grounded in reality and principle. That's how we win. That's why the Tuttle Twins books and cartoon series exist to help parents give their children a foundational understanding of the ideas of a free society. Now, Carrie McDonald says as more parents realize the children that realize the ideas that their children are continually exposed to and how they're often antithetical to the principles of a free society. They are eager to consume content that offers an alternate perspective. Outlets such as CNN may be opposed to such content, but their opposition is good for business. Thanks, CNN, said Boyack. Okay, that's a gratitude-based attitude right there. Some may say, oh, now, Brian, he's just being clever or coy, you know, with the fact that people are criticizing. I don't know. I mean, if you want to read motives into it like that, but, but you can't deny the fact that the more CNN and other media outlets, especially left-wing outlets, complain, hey, these kids' books, they're trying to teach kids conservative ideas. I'm sure they'll call it something worse, conservative indoctrination, as opposed to whatever it is that's being pounded into their heads daily by school and pop culture, etc. But the point is they're still drawing attention to what Connor Boyack is doing. And in many cases, that's attention that, you know, people who are sitting on the sidelines, 
might not otherwise have, have even had for this project. And I've noticed something, and I'm, you know, this, this is going to sound like a flex here, but, you know, keep in mind, I'm a very minor, you know, talk personality. In the grand scheme of things, I'm a nobody. But if I can see this happening even at, at the, the levels of my career that, uh, that I've seen, then, then surely this happens at larger levels as well. And here's what happens. Someone disagrees with you. And they decide, well, it's my crusade. I'm going to make sure that uh, I'm going to silence you. I'll, I'll, I'll share an example. Uh, about 25 years ago, when I was uh, building a radio career in St. George, Utah, um, you know, I was, I was definitely in my red meat throwing phase. And, and at the same time, I, I would say things that, uh, that I felt needed to be said, even if it was, you know, inconvenient or perhaps, you know, embarrassing to people in power. And one day... Uh, I think it was uh, somebody within the, the local school district got offended. The superintendent was upset. Well, that potty mouth Brian Hyde, why, why is he even on the radio? And so a teacher took it upon herself to organize a boycott of my show. And, you know, at the time, you know, my general manager calls me into his office and any any radio personality who's ever been called into the general manager's office. I mean, this is like the equivalent of, oh, the principal has summoned you. And, and I watched as, as my already balding general manager, his hair began to fall out right there before my eyes. And he's just like shaking his head. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Because we've got this teacher and she's calling our advertisers and telling them, you know, we're going to we're going to encourage people not to do business with you. If you don't withdraw your advertising, we get that horrible Brian off the radio. And, and at the time, it was kind of scary. I have to admit, I was like, oh, boy, you know, I, I've never encountered direct opposition like that before. But. There are a couple things that became very clear very quickly. Number one, you don't encounter opposition if you are not having some kind of impact. So if if you're not getting any pushback in your efforts, for instance, to promote the cause of liberty or to promote a message of freedom, then chances are you are probably not reaching the people that you need to be reaching. You know, worst case scenario, you're probably just preaching to the choir and Yes, you know, maybe maybe people are listening, but they're all just sitting around politely nodding like we're accustomed to seeing people do on, you know, NPR. However, something very curious happened, and and it happened multiple times. I mean, I I lost count of how many times there I was sitting across the desk from my general manager with his head in his hands going, oh, what are we going to do? You know, somebody's threatening another boycott. And eventually it became clear to me, let them. Let them go out there and promote that, oh, my goodness, this guy is such a radical. He just, you can't believe what a horrible individual he is. Because every time a boycott began, we would see a corresponding increase in my ratings. And I know life isn't all about ratings, and I've told the story of how, you know, it, eventually it came to where impact mattered more than, than simply, you know, garnering numbers. But... Because they were out there evangelizing uh, on on the idea that uh, I was a terrible person who needed to be removed from the public square, there were a number of people who decided, I got to see for myself, is this guy as radical and as bad as they say? Same thing that's happening with Connor Boyack in the Tuttle Twins books. Oh, are these really as horrible as, as what we're hearing about? And by virtue of drawing attention to them, uh, suddenly the audience increases. Now, I'm happy to report, in my case, you know, people tuned in and went, okay, he may be as full of it as a Christmas goose, but he's really not that bad of a guy. And, you know, I built a very large and loyal listening audience in the process. 
There's an actual term for this. It's called the Streisand effect. And it stems back to a court case where some photographer taking pictures of the California coastline somehow got a picture of Barbara Streisand's seaside house. And Barbara Streisand sued to make sure that nobody should have access to this image of her house and its beautiful position on the coast. If she would have just shut up, nobody would have cared. But as it was, she drew so much undue attention to that photograph, it became one of the most downloaded photographs of the California coast ever. And it all started because she kept drawing attention to it. You see where I'm going here? Be grateful when critics reach out to you and say, I'm going to make sure nobody ever watches, listens, or reads you again. Because they're doing promotion for you. This is the Disciples of Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, and this is the America Out Loud Network. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. People often ask me, Malcolm, how do we fight the corruption? Robert Frost has said it best. Freedom lies in being bold. Well, for six incredible years, bold is America out loud. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. If you're like me, you'd like life to return to some kind of normal. You're burned out on the precautions, but deep down, you still want to avoid getting sick. You've heard it talked about time and again by respected medical professionals. Use a povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray. Made in the USA, Cofix RX reduces viral loads and minimizes the risk of you getting sick. Find a retailer near you or click our banner ad on americaoutloud.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Welcome back to the Disciples of Liberty. Thank you so much for being part of our audience. Please, if you find a message here that resonates with you, that gives you confidence or gives you courage, or it just makes you smile for that matter, 
feel free to share it with other people who you think might benefit from it. I'll thank you in advance and appreciate everything you're doing right now in those efforts to to be a good influence on the society around you. In fact, I want to share with you a commentary based in the understanding that, uh, look, I don't think you have to be paranoid. I don't think you have to be using your imagination to recognize that harder times are not only upon us, but but, uh, hard times are on us, but harder times are coming. This is difficult not to see if you're paying attention to the bigger picture. And I'm not just talking about geopolitical conflict. I'm talking about economic hardship. I'm talking about political upheaval, civic decay. It's all there. We have all the ingredients for the perfect storm of a fourth turning. And that's something that uh, we should take seriously. But I want to ask this question. Would you rather live whether it's through good times or hard times, as a lion or as a sheep. Now, before you answer that question, I want you to consider some observations made by Alan Stevo. And this is a piece titled, If You Have Problems Trusting, You Will Have Problems Living a Life of Freedom. I think this is a really brilliant explanation. He says, as the regime around us falls apart, Americans and all people will increasingly look to more trustworthy or look for more trustworthy leaders to turn to for answers. Now, this is where you come in. He says, my job here is to rouse lions. Your job is to be that lion. Your job is to be that person who walks through the day unable to do anything but be his free self. Now, in all likelihood, it's the most natural thing you've ever done. It's probably been what you have always done. Alan Stevo says, it's probably the easiest job anyone has asked you to do to live life as freely as you can each and every day. And as simple as it sounds, that level of authenticity from a lion like you is exactly what we need to get us out of this mess. Now, you may not be able to change the world overnight, but through your own free lion-like behavior, you can deeply impact your life, your home, and the community around you. That is to say, you can change the world as you know it. Now, here he talks about three different groups. He says, I've written before about the three groups of people who tend to form at times like these and who actually exist through all periods of time. He says, I speak of a lion as opposed to a more hyena-like person or a more sheep-like person. But all three exist in all periods of time. And it is the lion that determines the trajectory of history based on whether he is awake or asleep. So, let's start with how a hyena behaves. Hyenas spend their days looking for who to take advantage of. Hyenas are plentiful in our era and constantly presented in the media as people you are assured you can trust. When allowed to run a society, they do the most untrustworthy things. This takes place when the lions choose to sleep rather than when lions roam their territory. That's because the mere presence of awake lions makes the hyena the hyena's control of society impossible. Now let's talk about how sheep behave. The more sheep-like folks are the biggest mass of people in a society. They're generally looking for who to follow. Sheep spend a good deal of time examining who is trustworthy. In other words, from one moment to the next, they are skittishly looking about for the best leader. Who do I follow? Now, notably, this may leave a sheep-like person following one group of people one minute and a totally different group the next minute. And this is not necessarily a contradiction since the values involved are not as important 
to most sheep-like people as that sense of security, even around following a seemingly trustworthy person. Now let's contrast that with how a lion behaves. The lions, notably, are not specifically trying to get anyone to trust them. That's just something, that's something the hyenas and sheep are busy concerning themselves with. Lions are just trying to live more free lives. And that brings about a notable conflict. See, the hyenas are trying to look for people to devour or control. They accordingly specialize in looking trustworthy to get to, to others in order to get their way. And the sheep, on the other hand, are looking for people to trust, and they are accordingly gullible because they often seek shortcuts to quickly find comfort in trusting a leader, even though such a leader is as untrustworthy as they come. The need to always be following a leader undermines the sheep-like pursuit of safety. It brings the hyenas great happiness that the lions do not care more about being good leaders. In fact, it brings the sheep great frustration that lions don't care more about being good leaders. In fact, needs such as who is trustworthy to follow tends to mean so little to a lion that he doesn't even want to play such a game. He happily leaves it for the sheep and the hyenas to play with each other. Now, the lion is focused on being asleep at the job where many lions today are in which case he is focused on living his own free life off by himself. Or, a lion is focused on being on the prowl, roving his territory, in which case he too is living his own free life. By being awake and living his own free life, a lion spreads freedom better than anyone else in a society can. In fact, the sheep can only ever experience freedom when following a lion. And a hyena can only experience freedom when at the mercy of of a lion. And again, neither of these details tend to concern the lion because he's simply out there doing his own free thing. Now, all of this is to illustrate a detail that tends to be true in life. And that is, if trust is a concept that you're stuck on, who can I trust or who can I get to trust me? Then freedom is probably not an attribute that you can fully embrace. The lion has moved beyond such a worry or perhaps never even had it. Asking, how do I get others to trust me, or who do I trust, misses the nature of freedom. Freedom is grounded enough to be able to not fear the consequences of not being able to trust your fellow man. In other words, the free man will be fine whether or not he succeeds in developing that trust in others. The trust is not primary, but secondary. Freedom is also grounded enough to be able to not fear the consequences of being unable to be trusted by your fellow man. The free man will be fine whether or not others trust him. Being trusted by others is not primary but secondary. Only in the midst of having little concern for trust is freedom obtainable. Man, I almost want to pause for a moment and just let that sink in. You understand what that means? If there's any place where you need to be looking to put your trust, it's in yourself. That's, that's where you find freedom. Which means there are times you're going to have to stand alone. Sometimes when things are looking a little scary, you know, you're not the one looking around. Who's, who's here to lead me to safety? Because you trust you can do that yourself. And likewise, you're not, your, your sense of self-worth isn't dependent on, well, who is looking around for me to be their leader? You'll be surprised, but people will follow simply because they are pulled into your orbit by the gravitational pull 
of your leadership. And what makes it authentic is the fact that you're not trying to present yourself to them as a leader. You're simply living your life, choosing to be a free individual. I think the big lesson I take away from this is never underestimate the power of personal example and influence. It means that you're having impact on other people's lives. Uh, Let me put it another way. You're commanding the respect or the attention of others without any effort whatsoever to try to do so. It's a natural consequence of conducting yourself in such a way that they can't help but be influenced by who you are and how you live your life. Now, hopefully that doesn't sound like a flex or so much chest beating, but it's, it's more of an acknowledgement of that's the kind of personal greatness every one of us should aspire to. Back to Alan Stevo's article. He talks about firm foundations and says, now, remember, this is not to promote the lion as just a loner. Far from that. In the midst of that behavior in which one is neither needy for trust nor needy to be trusted, very solid relationships can be built on the firmest of footing. Now, there are plenty of foundations that lions build upon. In fact, he says, I have proverbially built many little towers in life on, upon all manner of foundations. But he says, time and again, I find that the most important to me is grounding myself upon God. That's the most stable foundation I've ever known. It's so stable that the contrast between trust and freedom is apparent. If trust is a primary concern, freedom is virtually inaccessible. Which raises the question of faith or fear. Now for a hyena or sheep, faith that freedom will come becomes unobtainable because one is busily occupied occupied rather on the topic of who to trust or who to get to trust them. For a sheep-like person, trust is a pathway to security and other life-affirming characteristics. Sheep desire to trust as quickly as they can. And Alan Stevo says this can be seen in the prevalence of sexual promiscuity. It can be seen in the adoration of the most undeserving political and cultural figures. It is trust for the sake of trust. The harm one does to oneself by being so needy to trust is vast. And for a hyena-like person, being trustworthy is something to virtue signal in order to have influence. The extent of virtue signaling in this area is, of course, important. In the absence of true leadership and in the absence of actual virtue, mere signaling is all people really need in order to convince most people. In the short term, that you know, they're the real deal. And once again... Sexual promiscuity is notable as well as adoration of figures who do not deserve it. Practices like neuro-linguistic programming or pickup artistry become welcome trade-offs. So the trade-off between sheep and hyenas is sheep seek to trust as quickly as they can. Hyenas seek to be trusted as quickly as they can. So there's often a societal trade when the lions are asleep. Left to their own devices... Hyenas look for people to take advantage of, and the sheep look for people with trustworthy qualities. Can you see where this creates a situation that becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy? The hyenas will happily feign trustworthiness if it means they get to take advantage of another. A sheep will happily let another take advantage of him if it means he can get comfortable in an environment in which all the right amount of virtue signaling around trust and security is provided. So this cozy relationship makes a whole lot of sense until you factor in two things. 
Number one, hyenas unable to truly deliver on what's fundamentally needed fail and create crisis. And number two, lions exist. So first, let's examine the failure of hyenas. Alan Stevo says eventually the hyenas run out of room to take advantage of sheep and push things too far, proving themselves so very untrustworthy in the eyes of all watching. Crisis occurs as hyena leaders, each one more untrustworthy than the one prior, jockey for influence. Leaders can be at a societal level or a local level, even at a personal level. The fundamentals of that undeserved trust, though, are similar. They have nothing of substance to provide, and society increasingly finds itself in a mess. That crisis will rouse a lion from sleep. Okay, so now let's get to the second part. What about the existence of lions? Alan Stevo says you might be able to imagine that if sheep and hyena are seemingly comfortable together, the presence of a lion on the prowl is quite disruptive. Well, he says in the long term, the truth is only a lion can ever provide the leadership a society needs. Only a lion can live free and create the structure that allows both freedom and security to others. It's exactly what the mass of people, the sheep, want. Yet the lion refuses to placate them with phony shows of leadership. To even behave such a way welcomes the hyena spirit in. It shortchanges the natural potential growth that happens when a lion seeks to placate and destabilizes the future potential of the relationship. A lion is more likely to say, if you need phony shows of leadership to, sh- to see why I'm better than a hyena, then I want nothing to do with you. So to read this in the context of our current climate, a lion will say, if you need phony shows of leadership to see why I'm better than Tony Fauci or Bill Gates or Klaus Schwab, then I want nothing to do with you. But that doesn't work for the sheep, at least in the short term. Why? Well, because the sheep needs reassurances. The hyena will happily provide those reassurances. This is despite the fact that the hyena, number one, lacks a backbone, Number two, lacks a moral compass. Number three, has no obedience to values. Number four, cannot lead in all but the most shallow, stilted, carefully studied, book knowledge, MBA class obtained, slithery definitions of the concept. Number five, will say anything that needs to be said to survive. Number six, will say anything that needs to be said to take advantage of every scenario for his own benefit. And number seven, quite literally seeks to devour the very people who are foolish enough to trust him to lead. I mean, are you connecting the dots here right now? You're recognizing, oh my goodness, that sounds like basically politicians are hyenas. Yep, it certainly does. So other than the fact that the hyena is the very last person that anyone should follow, the hyena is a really great leader. Sheep end up following the hyena and end up getting all their short-term needs for security met. And there's a lot of undeserved confidence in that equation. So why do they see the lion as a threat? A lion living his own free life is clearly a threat to the hyena and can easily be seen as a problem to the sheep. Why? Well, because he's different. He stands out. He's being free. He refuses to follow the rules that everyone else obediently follows. He knows the, the, the hyena has no authority over him. Alan Stevo says the great mass of people can be easily convinced that the lion is the enemy in the short term, when in fact the lion is the only long-term leader that ever makes sense to follow. 
The roaming lion can be easily made into an enemy by sheep and hyena alike. The sleeping lion as well can be seen as a threat. The sheep often know no better. Those who do want to put in put short-term impressions of security before all else, they often carry this knee-jerk belief that freedom is the enemy of security, rather than seeing the truth that freedom is the enabler of all manner of good things that allow security to be possible. Now, the hyena, of course, sees this quite clearly and knows that empty words and superficial attempts at security are the best a hyena can provide. So the hyena is naturally quite threatened by the lion. The sheep see a lion as a killjoy in the short term. His very presence shakes up the comfort of the status quo. And I would add, it also provides them with some contrast and comparison that uh, perhaps they're not real happy about. When they compare themselves to a lion, they may see something that reminds them of their own weaknesses or their own perceived um, lack of conviction. Now, the presence of the lion leaves the uneasy feeling that something's wrong. The undiscerning sheep, having no idea what this could be, pays no heed to the hyena preying on the herd, but insists the existence of the roaming lion with his toxic, outmoded, and patriarchal notions such as standards, values, or conscience could be the only possible explanation of what's wrong. But remember this. Ultimately, the lion does not care what the other two think. The lion doesn't care what they think as long as they stay out of his way. And so Alan Stevo says, Dear lion, if you can live your life as freely as possible, grounded on good foundation, ignoring the evil cackles of the hyenas and the frightened bleating of the sheep, if you can stay focused on how you can live the most free life possible, you will ripple out freedom around you as you win this day. I mean, does that make sense? Does that, uh, does that ring a few bells in you? To me, the most powerful part about this is you don't have to do anything grandiose. All you have to do is, is insist and act like a person who has decided that I will live as a free man or a free woman, regardless of what others are saying. I know this may seem a little bit trite, but one of the most liberating things that you can ever give yourself is the gift of not caring what others are saying. Now, that doesn't mean that you're so arrogant because you believe I can never be wrong. I mean, humility is a big part of greatness, but the ability to be a humble person, to be teachable, in other words, to be willing to seek out and correct your own mistakes These are very laudable qualities. But the need to have approval from others is not a good quality. That's a weakness. That's a liability. That's the kind of thing that needs to be, you know, excised from your soul, purged from your life. Because the approval of others is always going to leave you wanting more and doubting yourself when it really counts. This is why I think Alan Stevo has, you know, exactly the right idea. The answer is not, you know, well, we just need to run the right candidate or we need to mount this kind of campaign or we need to build this kind of a community. Those are far down the road concerns. Those things might be good. I'm not saying that, well, maybe they would make a difference, but I'm saying the primary thing that you can do and you should do 
which will have the most immediate effect on the world around you is to make up your mind that I am going to live as a free individual and then, like a lion, do it. Regardless of what other people say, regardless of whether they whisper, regardless of if they roll their eyes when they see you approaching the podium to comment, you know, at a public meeting. You know, your biggest opponent is yourself. And if you've taken the time to figure out who you are and what you stand for, then I don't know what to say other than congratulations. You've defeated your most significant opponent in that you're a better person than you were yesterday. You don't have to prove something to other people at that point. The only person you have to prove anything to is yourself, and that is that not only can I trust myself to go out and seek and find and recognize truth when I find it, but I can trust myself to live up to it. And that's important. I'll throw a link in the show notes so that you can click on this article and read it for yourself. I mean, look, none of us really want to think of ourselves as a sheep, but can, can we agree? When things get tough, I know I want to look around and say, okay, who, who looks like they know what's going on? Who looks like they have a good enough grasp of the situation that they can, can take charge? You know, if you've ever come upon a car accident or somebody's clutched their chest and fallen to the ground in front of you, Are you the person who's going to step in there and start administering first aid or administer CPR? I think most of us would be tempted to first look around and make sure that there's not someone more qualified to do the job. Well, when it comes to our freedom, we have the very same tendency. That is to look around. Okay, who's more qualified? Who knows more? Who has more wisdom? Who has more clout than I do? Because if you start, you know, stepping up and taking action, you are definitely going to open yourself up to criticism. You're going to open yourself up to the idea that some people are going to disagree. Some people are actually going to portray you as a threat. But a lion doesn't care about that. So if you have some of those sheep-like tendencies, first of all, don't beat yourself up. We all do. Depends on the circumstance. I'm guessing that you wouldn't find many hyenas in our listening audience. I don't know. Maybe some politicians monitor this just to, let's see what these radicals are up to. But uh, nonetheless, the description that Alan Stevo gives of hyenas to me is just so spot on of virtually every politician, particularly career politician, that I've ever known of. And, and I want to make a distinction here because I don't want to make it sound like anybody in public office is a politician. Most are, sadly, but every so often you'll get someone who will slip through who is more of a statesman than a politician. Why does that matter? Well, because statesmen are the people who live like lions. They do the right thing because it's the right thing to do and not because, well, it's politically expedient. I mean, you see the difference, right? All right, I want to shift gears. There's one last article I wanted to share. And and it's just because, uh, maybe it's because it was snowing where I live earlier this week, and it's April, and I'm thinking, why? (laughs) Can't we just have, can't we have some spring-like weather? We had some last week. It was beautiful. But, uh, yeah. And, of course, when a snowstorm comes along like this, especially once you're well into spring, people start talking climate change or global warming. And, And a lot of us have heard this talk about global warming, and I don't know if you lose sleep over climate change or not. But after a third of a century, 
of hearing about this threat, Paul Rosenberg says it's safe for us to start drawing some conclusions. He says it was in 1988 that I first heard of global warming. Seeing that we'd recently emerged from a decade-long cold spell, it came as something of a surprise, but I didn't think much of it one way or another, as I had by that time learned to ignore the pay-attention-to-me class. So he says the next time I thought about it was a couple of years later, when I ran into Larry Abraham's article on the greening of the Reds. Now he says that caught my attention, and as I recall, it got a lot of things right. Since then, he says, I could barely avoid the topic as it mounted an assault on the minds of billions of people. It has become, to to state it very bluntly, a replacement religion for the West that has abandoned Christianity. I don't think that's a bad explanation. He says it's been taught to school children, first in Europe, now in North America, almost as a catechism. They call it climate change these days. Global warming was simply too vulnerable a term, but the dogma is the same. Humans, bad. Freedom, bad. Markets, very bad. Nature, divine. Governments, the sword of righteousness. But the problem for the catechists, however, is a large one. The much-promised consequences simply aren't happening. We were told back in 1988 that over the next century, all sorts of very obvious things would happen. Islands sinking below the ocean with their inhabitants drowning and so on. Hmm. And then, of course, a variety of actors and politicians scrambled for relevance by championing the cause. They, too, made predictions, nearly all of which have been spectacular failures. Hmm, again. See, the crazy thing is global warming would actually be a good thing. A warmer planet means better harvest and more food is very, very good. On top of that, and this may really bake your noodle, we could probably use more carbon dioxide, not less. He goes, I know that's the wildest of heresies, but we're far below optimal for vegetation. So, he says, I'm going to continue with my experiences since I think they're useful. In the early 1990s, in the course of his work, Paul Rosenberg says, I did a lot of research on alternative energy sources, which brought me directly into the global warming issue. And he says, what I found was it was full of holes. Now, he goes, I'm not officially an engineer, but I did engineering work for many years, and I've learned to examine things as an engineer. So when I looked at the global warming literature, I had no problem rejecting it. Once you got past the emotional veneer, there wasn't much there. Everything was a projection produced by an echo chamber. Then he says, as he's written about previously, he was able to attend the big UN climate change meetings two years running. What he saw there was a convention of publicity seekers and money grabbers. And aside from a few more failed predictions, it provided him with little or nothing. Not long after that, He enjoyed a dinner with the late Fred Singer, who was a very serious scientist and a very great opponent of the global warming industry. Now, he says, the conversation didn't particularly convince me of anything, but it did connect me with the fact that solar radiation is by far the greatest factor in weather on Earth, a fact that's ignored by the catechism instructors. So by this time, we should be seeing plenty of real-life effects of these predictions, but instead, we're just seeing more documents, more more assertions, and meanwhile, it was snowing this morning in April. So the point that Paul Rosenberg is making here is we are living through a string of manias. And climate change, the climate change religion specifically, is just one of a long string of manias promulgated by TV and social media. He says, as long as people remain plugged into that real-life matrix, they'll follow its voice almost anywhere. And they'll consider anyone not following to be both deluded and joined to evil. That's the binary emotional structure of the era. Now, I love how he concludes the article. He says, so if you could read this article without freaking out and deciding that I'm a dangerous madman, 
for which I thank you, please consider how you were able to get out or stay out of the dark parade. And then once you understand it fairly well, start helping others to get out. He says it'll be a slow process. You'll be called a lot of names along the way, but it's a necessary thing, a humane, compassionate thing. So good luck. I like his take on just about everything that I've read from Paul Rosenberg. He's, he's really good. But this is one of the best ones that I've seen. And when he talks about how anyone who is not following the, the narrative of the day, the official narrative, has to face some pretty serious opposition because a vast majority of the population has been trained, conditioned, if you will, to view them as both deluded as well as joined to evil. That's a pretty daunting task to want to open your mouth in that kind of an environment, knowing that people are just lined up and ready to take swings at you. But I also like his point of, look, if you have found your way out of the swamp of misinformation, then you have a duty to help others who are likewise trying to find their way out of that swamp. I'm here to assure you that you are up to that task, and it's best to get on with it. This is the Disciples of Liberty show on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Brian Hyde.